There we go. Welcome to the Race Car Podcast. I'm your host, Curtis. So today's car, the Ferrari 637, is something that I was aware of for a while, and I kind of knew in a passing sort of way why it existed. But I figured with IndyCar season starting today, I'm recording this on Sunday, um, Formula One being back in full swing, and the fact that on the last episode I said I might do a red car, you know, Ferrari, uh, I suppose I guess in that way I'm kind of keeping my word, even though I said I'd go back to Formula One, but I'm not. So what do we think are the best reasons to build a race car? I suppose if you listen to last week's episode, marketing is kind of a big one, like Volvo did building that uh, the 850 estate touring car. A lot of it was down to marketing. They thought it'd be great uh, you know, to see a long roof Volvo wagon out there on the track, you know, passing by BMWs and stuff, which... Unfortunately, that didn't happen in 1994, but marketing is probably a pretty strong reason why you do stuff. And I suppose if you're not trying to do that, then you just have a desire to win. So, I mean, that might even be the more common one than marketing, you know, love of competition. I think Porsche probably did that a lot, like when they went back to Le Mans with the 919, where, let's face it, at this point, Porsche literally has nothing to prove. So they pretty much just went back there because they could. I would have to say, though, that probably building a car out of spite is probably my favorite reason for somebody to build a race car. Basically, just somebody you feel somebody has wronged you. So you build a race car as a means of retaliation. And I think that's great. Uh, And it seems like building cars out of spite always in one way or another on one side or the other involves Enzo Ferrari. In fact, so... uh, Val, uh, Valentino Balboni, Lamborghini's longtime test driver, basically said that spiting Enzo Ferrari is why Lamborghini cars exist in general. So the story goes that Ferruccio Lamborghini, who at the time was building farm tractors, owned a pair of Ferraris, and he was known to go through clutches on them. At some point, he became tired of paying Ferrari to do the job, so he had his head mechanic do the repair. The mechanic was surprised to find that the clutch on the Ferrari was the exact same part that Lamborghini was using on his tractors, except, of course, at 100 times the price. Later on, Ferruccio happened to meet Enzo and told him. Uh, and, you know, and rather than being kind of a, you know, a, a light-natured ribbing sort of thing, that's not how Enzo took it at all. So this started a fight where Enzo told Ferruccio, you're a farmer, you should be happy to drive my cars, and Ferruccio said he would build his own goddamn sports car. So spiting Enzo is why we have cars like the Miura and the Countach and uh, the Gallardo and so on and so forth. So Enzo, though, was not at all above this himself, and that's really kind of where the story begins. So we go back to 1986. Formula One is in the middle of its first turbo era, and Ferrari is struggling with it. McLaren has just won their third consecutive driver championship uh, following two driver and constructor championship doubles in 1984 and 1985. Ferrari is seven years removed from Jody Schechter winning the driver's championship in 1979. Ferrari's turbo engine lags well behind that of TAG, which is really a Porsche, but it was badged as a TAG, uh, Honda, and Renault. So the FIA is working on new engine format, and they're actually going to be banning turbochargers. Ferrari would very much like to see a V12 engine be the format from 89 onward, but the FIA doesn't want to allow it. They're actually leaning towards V8s. V12s are Ferrari's business. It's what they did at the time. It was what they were best at. It was what they were known for. So for marketing and for competition, it was really in Ferrari's best 
best interest for that to be the format going forward. The FIA balked at Ferrari's demand, uh, so it was going to be three and a half liter NAV8s was what the FIA came up with. So Ferrari responded by issuing a statement threatening to leave Formula One for the American Open Wheel IndyCar Series, and the statement is as follows. It says, the news concerning the possibility of Ferrari abandoning Formula One to racing in the United States has a basis in fact. For some time at Ferrari, there's been study of a program of participation at Indianapolis and in the CART Championship. The event that in Formula One, the sporting and technical rules of the Concord Agreement are not sufficiently guaranteed for three years. The Ferrari team, in agreement with its suppliers and in support of its presence in the U.S., will put its program into effect. So it's important to note here that in 1986, when all this was happening, leaving F1 for IndyCar was a perfectly reasonable thing for Ferrari to threaten the FIA with. You had drivers like Mario Andretti and Emerson Fittipaldi had gone to IndyCar or CART, you know, whatever you want to call it at the time, uh, after winning Formula One World Championships. Drivers moved pretty frequently between the two series. So IndyCar was at a high point in the mid to late 80s. It wasn't a significantly lower level of motorsport from Formula One in any way. So IndyCar was 100% a legitimate destination for Ferrari in the mid-1980s. There is some indication that Ferrari had, like they said in the statement, started investigating IndyCar ahead of 1986. 86 is when they got serious about it. Ferrari had been to Indy way back in 1952, and at that time, Indy was actually a points-paying race in the Formula One World, in the Formula One World Championship at the time. The trip to Indy was actually kind of a pragmatic choice rather than one formed by a burning desire, say, to win the 500. Ferrari had developed a four and a half liter V12 for their 375 F1, but the F but F1 had changed the regulations to a two and a half liter engine for 1954. So Ferrari ended up putting the 4.5 in a car that they called the 375 Indianapolis, which was their Indy racer. Enzo sent the 375 Indy and future double world champion Alberto Ascari to America for the Indy 500, and the result really was not what anybody in red had hoped for. Ascari qualified the car 24th on the 33-car grid at 134.3 miles per hour. Pole speed was Chet Miller. By the way, guys, I just want to point out that a guy named Chet beat Ferrari uh, at 139.03 miles per hour in a Novi engine Curtis craft. Three other 375s were bought by American drivers but failed to qualify for the race. Ascari would spin uh, about 40 laps into the race and he'd retire with a wheel failure. But he really wouldn't be upset about that for too long because he would go on to win every remaining F1 World Championship race for the season. So it worked out fine for Alberto Ascari. Anyway, back to the 1980s. So Ferrari's tire supplier at the time was American company Goodyear, and Ferrari got Leo Mel, who is Goodyear's head of motorsport, to try and find them an IndyCar team who would partner with Ferrari on the car. It feels like a pretty smart move by Ferrari, because while they are one of the preeminent builders of open-wheel race cars on the planet, they didn't simply take for granted, like they did in 1952, that they could just read the rules, build a car, show up, and win. The team that they ended up working with was called True Sports. There's actually a couple of important names to know at True Sports, the first being driver Bobby Rahal. Sponsored by Budweiser, Rahal had put his March 85C Cosworth on the front row for the 85 Indy 500, but he had mechanical issues and had to retire for the race. Another person involved was the designer of the March 85C. He also designed the March 82G GTP car. He designed the March 881 F1 car, the Leighton House CG901, and went on to design a race car called the Williams FW14. That's right, we're talking Adrian Newey. 
over 150 Formula One races, 10 world championships, and basically shaped mid, uh, mid-90s Formula One car design. In this story, though, Adrian isn't just the designer of the copied car. He was also Bobby Rahal's race engineer. So Leo Mel works out this deal with True Sports. Ferrari would send their designer, Gustav Brunner, to the U.S. for the last half of the 85 season to learn the sport and familiarize himself with the cars and their workings. True Sports uh, would also send one of their March 85C chassis out to Ferrari in Maranello for Ferrari's mechanics to reverse engineer. In return, True Sports becomes the factory Ferrari Indy team when the car is ready. This is kind of a point where I think that there is an alternate universe somewhere where things went very differently. So in our universe, Adrian Newey turns down the role with Ferrari on this electing to stay at March and leaves the True Sports team for the rival Craco team. So I'm wondering if there's an alternate universe where Newey goes to Ferrari and he designs cars for them. If so, does Newey become the lead designer? If he does, Ferrari doesn't hire John Barnard in late 86, and all of a sudden the FW14 is Ferrari red, and the Ferrari 640 is white, blue, and yellow, because maybe Barnard ends up at Williams. Anyway, this is a segment I like to call fun with ADD, so let's get back to the main story. The other part of the deal is that Rahal and three of the team's mechanics would accompany the 85C on its month-long trip to Italy. Turns out it was a good idea that those guys were there. In the 1980s, IndyCar engines ran on methanol. So when they got the engine started, a byproduct of that was quite a lot of water pours out the exhaust. The Italian mechanics around the car weren't expecting it and reacted as if something was very wrong with the car. Eventually, the Americans communicated to them that everything was fine, but apparently it was a real show with all the animation of the Italians. Rahal ran the car around the track at Fiorano, eventually handing it off to Ferrari driver uh, Michel Alboreto which required some doing because Bobby's quite a bit larger of a man than Alboreto is. Once the work of setting up the car was done, the team left Italy and returned to the States. Gustav Brunner stayed with the True Sports team and sent info on the car back to Italy as he got it. Meanwhile, Ferrari developed an engine for the car. So IndyCar rules at the time were somewhat open, I guess. Uh, The dominant engine was the Cosworth DFX, which is a turbocharged engine of the Cosworth DFV, which... Seems like a power to every Formula One car to exist, between, you know, from what, like the, the late 60s to the early 80s. So uh, in addition to that, Ilmore had just partnered with Chevrolet on an engine which was set up the same way, 2.65 liter turbo V8, dual cam, 32 valve, all that. If you want to save some money, you could also run a Buick motor, uh, which would be uh, was it? Uh, a 209 cubic inch V6 it's it's the, the Buick Grand National engine, essentially. Um, IndyCar would let you have more displacement if you ran the Buick. So it was, like I said, 209 cubic inches versus 161 for the dual cam V8s. It also let you have more boost. The Buicks, though, were kind of a glass cannon because they would make massive power and qualifying usually went well, but they very rarely lasted a full race distance. Ferrari went along with the Cosworth and Ilmore model, which is a 2.65 liter turbo V8. Unlike Cosworth and Ilmore, Ferrari built a hot valley motor with the intake manifolds on the outside of the heads and the exhaust headers exiting in the center of the engine's V. So the exhaust fed into one massive turbo down by the transmission. And aesthetically, if you go and you look up the motor, like I, I think it looks cool. You know, I like the arrangement. It looks like, you know, like if my wife puts her hair up into a bun it reminds uh, for some reason it reminds me of that uh the engine was called the tipo 34 it ran on methanol like all any engines at the time 
and at about 29 PSI of boost, it made 700 horsepower or thereabouts at 12,000 RPM. So, uh, by the way, big shouts to Twitter user at ExhaustHeat1 for pointing out, if you look at the car, there is a lot of the Williams FW10 nose in the 637. And now that I'm, every time I look at the 637, all I can see at the front is a Williams FW10. Uh, but the the rest of the car is just super duper pretty. Uh, the nose has this kind of bulbous shape, I guess, at the top that the FW10 has. It has the Coke bottle rear of the Ferrari 640 and this big, awesome slab-sided rear wing. And then it was just painted Ferrari red. So, I mean, it's sort of like a, it kind of aggregates all of my favorite design features of 1980s race cars. I, I can't think of a better-looking open-wheel car than the Ferrari 637. In fact, in general, I do find that indie races of this era, specifically the road course cars, to be prettier than contemporary Formula One cars. I actually, on my desk right in front of me here, I have models of Nigel Mansell's FW14 and his Lola T93 uh, Indy car sitting on my desk. And for some reason, the proportions on the Lola just work better for me. It looks faster, even though around the same lap on a you know on any track in the world, except I guess Indianapolis, uh, the FW14 would be far quicker. But even where that Lola or contemporary March is good looking, the 637 is really just spectacular. The March is kind of chunky and the Ferrari is, it's like a Ferrari, you know, it's, it's super duper low. It's slim. Again, look it up. It, it is just, it is a fabulous looking car. So sometime in late 1986, apparently Ferrari had a meeting with the folks at the FIA at Marinello and they took the opportunity to run the 637 while they were there. So I don't I don't know if it was finally seeing that Enzo might not be bluffing on pulling out of Formula One, but sometime around there, the FIA did end up relaxing the regulations on the number of cylinders and the new engine, and Ferrari would be able to run a V12. So Ferrari race car model names, it seems to me, are largely arbitrary. The 375 was called that because each of the cylinders had a capacity of 375 cc's. The 126C meant it was a 120-degree V-angle six-cylinder engine competition. A 412T meant four valves per cylinder, V12 transverse gearbox. Unfortunately, I went looking for it, and the 637's number is not even that interesting. It's simply Ferrari's internal chassis code. Uh, the 89F1 car was called the 640 for the same reason. The engine, uh, Its engine also follows the 637's because the 640 was powered by the Tipo 35.5. So all this happened, they developed this car, and then the 637 just sort of went away. Uh, True Sport stopped getting updates, and Ferrari's thought to have stopped working on the car in early 1987. Some people blame, no credit, I, I would say blame, uh, new Ferrari technical director John Barnard, who just came over from McLaren at that time, with killing the 637 to focus more on Formula One. But for his part, uh, John Barnard denies the claim. Uh, he told the race.com, the truth of the matter is I had nothing to do with stopping the project or any involvement in it at all. Once I started at Ferrari, my name was used to quote, make things happen without the actual people responsible getting a bad name for themselves. Additionally, Bobby Rahal, uh, you know, who is very involved in this, doesn't think that the 637 was just a bluff by Enzo. He contends there are a lot of people involved in it who Ferrari respected a lot and they wouldn't have just wasted their time if it wasn't a real thing. Uh, Ray Hall said, quote, I can't believe that the intent of that was purely for show. I believe that there was a genuine effort to go forward with the program. So 
Ferrari didn't go back to Indy, but cousin brand Alfa Romeo did. In fact, some reports say the 637 was actually used as a test mule for the Alfa Romeo M191 Indy engine that ran pretty unsuccessfully from 89 to 92. So it is funny that when I learned that Alfa built an, en uh, an Indy engine two years after the 637, I expected there to be more in common between you know, the M191 and the Tipo 34. But if you look at them, there really doesn't seem to be, or at the very least, uh, Alpha didn't retain the Tipo 34's Hot Valley design for the M191. To me, it's really a shame that we never got to see Ferrari as an IndyCar manufacturer. Because it would have been fascinating to see where, you know, they may have gotten to by the mid-90s when Mercedes showed up. Maybe it would have been Penske Ferraris winning all those races. Maybe Nigel Mansell, after partnering Prost in 1990, comes to America two years early as a Ferrari IndyCar driver. Uh, apparently, I'm going fairly heavy on alternate universes in this particular episode. So, but with the budget, uh, the F1 budget cap coming into effect for what, next uh, next season, I guess, 2022, uh, it is possible we might see Ferrari explore IndyCar as an engine supplier along with Chevy and Honda. So, to me, after 75 years or so since Ferrari's last visit to Indy, I would, you know, if it's up to me, I would say that they're due. So that does it for me with the 637. Um, so what are we, you know, what's, what am I going to for the next episode? Will it finally be the time that I stop choos choosing uh, oddball cars? And the definitive answer to that is no. The next episode will be the 1989 Audi 90 GTO, which is, I don't know, it's a, a it's a ridiculous car. I, I don't know that any race car has ever shared less in common with its road car than the night than the, the the audi 90 gto uh but if you do have any suggestions for a future show i'd love to hear it you can shoot me a dm on twitter at race car podcast shoot me an email uh race car podcast gmail.com but uh i said that does it for the 637 so i'm going to edit this and get it out to you guys thanks for listening have a good one i'll talk to you soon <laughs>